You are listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit brockportfirstbaptist.org. The New Testament reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. We've already had some brief studies on one through eight with Pastor Dan, and we hope to learn more on number nine this week. Please follow. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So we're coming towards the end of our series on the Beatitudes. Uh, For the last seven weeks or so, we've been looking at this series of blessings from Jesus together, Um, and we've only got two more to go, which is pretty exciting. Um, The Beatitude we're looking at today is a particularly good one, a favorite of mine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, this is probably the most overtly political of the Beatitudes. Um, You don't really need to read between the lines on this one to see that uh, there's some challenging stuff here. When I hear, blessed are the peacemakers, I have, um, I get visions in my head of, like, Gandhi and Jimmy Carter. Um, (laughs) Figures who uh, are remembered very fondly, maybe now, but in their own day were very divisive figures. Jesus' blessing of the peacemakers connects with a consistent theme of nonviolence running through his entire teachings. And while most Christians remember Jesus quite fondly today, our opinions are a bit more mixed when it comes to all of his talk about loving our enemies and turning away from violence, especially if we're actually supposed to do this stuff today. Uh, I'm a drummer, a lot of you know that already. Uh, And I've had the opportunity to play drums at a number of different churches, which is really pretty fun. And I once played drums at a church where the worship leader carried a gun on him while leading worship. And in fairness, this was in rural Pennsylvania, so pretty much everyone is carrying a gun. Um, That's a joke. But it was still a bit off-putting. I'm sitting there playing drums in church. I look up from the drum set to see the handle of a nine millimeter sticking out over the belt of a man singing Amazing Grace. There's just something there that doesn't quite connect for me. You're not packing heat, are you, Scott? I left it at home. <laughs> you left it at home, that's good. That's good, that's a relief. I thought I would check, you know. Um, <clears throat> now that's an extreme example, uh, but it speaks to the fact that there's some tension here, especially in our culture. 
Um, there's something about Jesus' teaching on nonviolence that feels very alien to us, maybe even un-American. The right to protect ourselves, to fight back against our enemies, is written into our Constitution. So why does Jesus toe such a hard line on nonviolence, and what are we supposed to do with that today? Sometimes it feels like Jesus is calling us to be pushovers, um, to be victims, to let people walk all over us. And we don't like that very much. That doesn't seem like a blessing for obvious reasons. And later on in Matthew uh, 5, just a few verses after the Beatitudes, Jesus actually expands on this blessing. He builds on it, and he uses the same language about being called children of God. I'm actually going to read now. It's uh, Matthew 5, starting in verse 38, and it'll be on the screens. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. There it is again. That line from our blessing. Another call to nonviolence, to peacemaking, paired with the promise that we would be called children of God. Now, I really want to dig into this whole turn the other cheek thing, uh, because I think it's important, uh, but I also think it might be helpful to actually act this out. Sometimes seeing something can be very different from hearing it, but to do that, I'm going to need a very brave volunteer. I'm serious. <laughs> Does anyone want to volunteer to come up here? Oh, well, yeah, Jim. Jim, you'll be good for this. Come, let's, let's come on up here, Jim. All right. Does everyone know Jim? Say hi to everyone. All right, excellent. Now, Jim, we're going to act out this whole turn the other cheek thing. But here's the good news. You're going to get to slap me, okay? You shouldn't be too excited about that. Okay, good. <laughs> Very good. All right, cool. But before we do this, there's some important background, some cultural information you need to know. Um, for example, the first thing... Did you know that in the first century, in the world of Jesus, there was no toilet paper? Did you know that? Yeah, you, you, could, you could guess. And I swear to you that this is relevant. <laughs> and here's why. All right, so people didn't have toilet paper in the first century, but they had two hands, just like we do today. The right hand and the left hand. Or you might say the clean hand or the dirty hand. And I'm left-handed, so I'm really out of luck in this one. But the right hand was the strong hand for most people. So this was the clean hand. This is the hand you would use to eat. It was the hand you would maybe shake hands with. If you're going to hit somebody, you're going to hit them with this hand. Because the left hand is the hand that you use to do the stuff we do with toilet paper today. Is that clear enough for everybody? I don't want to get gross. Okay. <clears throat> so like the left hand, oftentimes you might cover it up when you're in public. You might put it in your pocket. You would never touch someone with your left hand. You wouldn't even hit somebody with your left hand because it's unclean, and that makes you look bad, okay? So take your filthy left hand and stick it in your pocket. Okay, now, <clears throat> I gotta get myself ready for this. What's the line from Jesus again? If anyone slaps you on which cheek? The right cheek, that's this cheek. All right, so using your strong hand, your right hand, 
in, the, in a gentle way, <laughs> I would like you to slap me on the right cheek. Oh, that was good. That was really good. Now, did everyone see that? Did everyone, everyone see what kind of a slap that is? If someone slaps you on the right cheek, that is a backhanded slap, and that is important. This is not a slap between equals. This is the way that uh, a member of the elite might shoo away a peasant, or um, a soldier, a Roman soldier might slap um, a non-citizen, basically most of the people listening to Jesus. This is the way a master would hit a slave. This is not a slap between equals. That would be an open palm slap to the left cheek. So Jim, let's say that you're a Roman soldier, and I'm a peasant, and you've just slapped me, you've just backhanded me. I have a couple of options. I could hit you back, at which point I'm going to be arrested, probably killed. I could walk away, end the violence, um, but that kind of affirms the imbalance of power. That basically accepts that you are over me. Or I could take option C, what Jesus says. I could turn the other cheek. I could offer you the chance to slap me as an equal. And if I do that, now you have a decision to make. Because you could slap me on the left cheek, which signals to everybody in this culture of honor and shame that we are equals, that you're no longer over me. Or you could walk away, which ends the violence. Do you see the subversive brilliance of turning the other cheek in this situation? Does everyone kind of see that? Now, we're not going to act that part out because I don't want you to hit me again, and I'm afraid you might. Um, but thank you so much for coming up here, Jim. This was great. Let's hear it for Jim. Let's hear it for our volunteer. That was good. That was awesome. <clears throat> I should let people hit me during sermons more often. That was good. <clears throat> so hopefully that little demonstration gets at what Jesus is talking about when he blesses peacemakers. I think it really does. In our culture, we tend to think about peace as the absence of conflict, as the absence of violence. It's a very passive idea. But in a first century Jewish context, peace, or shalom, if you've heard that word, was something very different. You can answer that if you want, but it's okay. <laughs> That's good. It's no, no worries. It's all good. Shalom is not the absence of violence. Um, Jesus' people, they were wise enough to understand that, that the absence of conflict is no guarantee of peace. We're talking about a people that had been conquered over and over again, ruled over by the, the Greeks, the Babylonians, the Romans. The absence of violence is what the Romans counted on to maintain their order. No one in Jesus' circles would have called that peace. By turning the other cheek, you're not being a doormat. You're saying, hey, if you're going to hit me, at least hit me as an equal. And it's the same when Jesus says, if someone forces you to go one mile, go the second mile. Roman soldiers would often force random peasants to carry their gear for them. We see this um, as Jesus is going to the cross. The soldiers grab Simon of Cyrene and make him carry the cross. But Roman law stipulated that a person could only be forced to carry about the equivalent of a mile. So if you go a second mile, you're now reversing the power dynamic. The soldier can't force you to carry something that far, but if you do it by your own free will, you're no longer a peasant being forced to come along. You're now a co-traveler on the journey. This is what it looks like to be a peacemaker. 
When Jesus says, do not resist an evil person, he's not saying we should let evil people win or walk all over us. He's saying that if you answer violence with violence, it's only going to get worse for you. Much better and much more in line with peacemaking, with shalom making, with setting things in right perspective, is to address the underlying power imbalances that allow violence to happen in the first place. Think about a famous peacemaker like Martin Luther King Jr. People thought King was crazy for instructing his supporters to take beatings without fighting back. But King knew that if images of nonviolent, peaceful black protesters getting beaten in the streets showed up in every American household on the evening news, that things would begin to change, that the imbalance of power would begin to shift. And it worked. Now, that's not to say that things are balanced today, because they're not. We've come a long way since the 1960s, but we still have massive imbalances of power in our society. And there are still plenty of peaceful peacemakers responding to violence through nonviolent resistance. The question question I think this beatitude should provoke for us is... Are we on their side? Are we a channel of God's blessing to the peacemakers of today? Or have we become so numb to violence, so blinded by tribalism, that we miss it? This is a question I think about a a lot as a person of privilege. Um, What social injustices benefit me? What evils have I become blind to? Where am I complicit? Am I using my privilege to advance the cause of those without? Or am I using it for my own interests? And we all have some degree of privilege. If you're an American, if you have food on the table, you have privilege. Are you using that to be a peacemaker? Are you using that to promote shalom in our world today? Before we wrap things up, I've talked a lot about peacemaking, but I've got to say something about the reward in this beatitude, because all these beatitudes, they share a common structure. We've talked about this before. There's the the declaration of blessing on the one side, and then there's the promise or the reward. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Children of God is a a good gender-inclusive translation, which is fantastic. Um, In the original Greek, it's sons of God. But sometimes even a good, inclusive translation like this can cause us to miss a bit of the subtext. There were two contexts that the phrase son of God could be used in Jesus' day. The most obvious was with the emperor of Rome. The Romans hailed their leader as a son of the gods, and it was even believed that when the emperor died, he would rise up and take his place among the gods. So, on the one hand, when Jesus declares that's not the emperor, but it's peacemakers, not the person who upholds these imbalances, but the people who erase them that are the children of God, he's undermining some imperial language. But there's another way Son of God was used in Jesus' day, and it would have hit much closer to home for his listeners. The Jewish people used Son of God as a title for their own king back when they actually had a king of their own. 
By the time of Jesus, son of God, son of God had become a messianic title. Uh, it signified the people's hope that God would send a deliverer, a fighter, um, someone who could, who could fight for them, overthrow their oppressors, cast off Roman rule, that kind of thing. And Jesus' listeners were expecting a warrior, a violent revolutionary, not someone who would balance the power dynamics, but someone who would put them at the top, who would make them victorious over the people who were persecuting them. By declaring peacemakers would be called children of God, Jesus is subverting his own cultural expectations for deliverance and victory. So how does that all apply to us? Well, if we fancy ourselves to be peacemakers, we have to start close to home. It doesn't take much for me to renounce violence, you know, like in theory. Uh, I'm in my mid-30s. I'm overweight. No one is drafting me. <laughs> um, I live in a safe neighborhood. My country isn't under the threat of um, invasion, although if Canada gets antsy, we are the first defense. But, <laughs> but yeah, being nonviolent in a broad sense for me is pretty easy. It's pretty easy for most of us. Where things get a lot harder is incorporating peacemaking, incorporating shalom in our day-to-day -day existence, in how we speak to people, in how we interact with our families and coworkers, in how we view ourselves, um, in our consumption habits, how we invest our money, steward our resources, all that kind of stuff, the kind of conversations we allow ourselves to get dragged into on Facebook how we treat and how we view other people on the other side of the political aisle. That would also be a place where peacemaking needs to start. It's not always just about opting out of physical violence. Much trickier is turning away from the violence we are immersed in every single day. This stuff is hard. <laughs> Living nonviolently is not for the faint of heart. But for those willing to begin by addressing the violence at the core of our very beings, at the core of our hearts, our souls, then blessed are the peacemakers is actually a road to freedom. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Amen.